You are listening to A Meeting of the Madams. This is Amory Sky. Have a seat. In light of Hurricane Ida, I thought on today's episode, I would share an interview I previously had with Dr. Danielle Wright, who is New Orleans-based public health practitioner, social worker, and filmmaker to talk about her company, Navigate NOLA, as well as some of the film work she's done about telling the stories of her hometown of New Orleans through her lens and the lens of people around her. Well, thank you for coming on my podcast today. Um, you can go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay, sure. Um, I'm Danielle Wright. I'm a social worker and public health practitioner, uh, graduate of Spelman College for undergrad, and then I went to Tulane for graduate school. I have three graduate degrees from Tulane, and um, I have two master's degrees in public health and in social work, and then I have a doctorate in social work. Um, and then I'm certified in disaster mental health and infant mental health. So, um, yeah, I'm a New Orleans native, been living here all my life except for um, college. Of course, I went to I went to Spelman, so lived in Atlanta. And so I uh, run an organization called Navigate NOLA, and we um, we work to integrate social and emotional learning into schools on multiple levels. So through classroom based interventions, through uh, teacher well-being support and uh, policy advocacy and data and research. five and six year olds in my group and uh, the woman who ran uh, the summer camp, uh, Miss Guana, told me that she felt like I had a special gift to work with young children um, and I didn't believe her, uh, but I continued to work in that capacity as a summer camp counselor um, and there were two kids that really um, sort of stole my heart. One of them was, um, actually, was um, actually exposed to drugs in utero and had, um, and he displayed symptoms that were similar to ADHD in terms of hyperactivity. And so um, he was super um, active and so much so that he couldn't really focus on summer camp activities. And we would let him just run around the gym to get his um, energy out. Um, And then when he came back the next summer, um, they had put him on a drug called Ritalin and it completely like zapped his entire personality and he was a totally different kid, like very isolated. And that was really disturbing to me. And so um, I spent a lot of time just kind of thinking about him and uh, he was always sort of at the forefront of my thoughts as I navigated through college um, and just life experiences. And then the, there was another kid, another kid at the same summer camp who had really horrific eczema and uh, would really like struggle because, you know, eczema is very uncomfortable. It's itchy, it's painful. And so um, he would have, um, 
he would experience like the onset of like um, eczema and it would inhibit his ability to, to just be able to enjoy summer camp and have a normal day. And so now we've come really far with like our understanding of eczema and even understanding that there's an emotional component that can sort of trigger it. Um, and so I would say working with those two kids and like just feeling at that point, like I couldn't help them. Um, and so I think that sort of shaped my desire to want to help uh, children who struggle or um, have challenges or live in under-resourced communities. Um, so that's one side of it. And then the other side, I think, is, are just like my, um, the social conditions that I experienced as a Black girl growing up in New Orleans and now as a woman, Black woman navigating similar experiences around inequities. Um, and so Americans across the lifespan, African-Americans in New Orleans, whether they were born and raised here or uh, whether they were transplants sort of navigating um, New Orleans at, throughout adulthood. But um, that they were documentaries that were like comprised of a series of interviews to sort of understand um, those experiences across the lifespan. So growing up um, as an African-American boy, navigating um, or and as an African-American girl and sort of how they navigated various challenges um, across um, thinking through like inequities across wealth, health and economics um, and just some of the experiences that shaped who they are and who they uh, who they became. So we interviewed um, a pretty wide age range of individuals. I think with the Navigate Her documentary, which was Black women sort of exploring their intergenerational experiences, the youngest person we interviewed was like three at the time. And I think that extended beyond to uh, the oldest person we interviewed, I think, was like in their 70s. And then with Navigate Him, the youngest boy I think we interviewed was... Ugh, uh, I think he might have been in pre-K at that time. And um, the oldest person that we interviewed with Navigate Him was like someone in their 90s. And so we, you know, were able to, um, it, it's almost felt like qualitative data gathering for me, uh, being on the other side of the interviews, but it, it helped to like shape my understanding and, and also to sort of shape the public understanding of the experiences that African-Americans have had um, across their lifespan and like varying across different age ranges and, and age categories and experiences. And so, so many of those experiences had similarities and were in sync. And then there were, um, you know, some differences like across age. But um, I would say that those documentaries uh, sort of set out to um, change the na narrative and push back against some of the negative stereotypes that exist um, um uh, for African-Americans. Um, so that's one part of it. And then the other part was really, um, it was helpful for me to start to build programming around uh, what I pulled out of um, my understanding based on those themes. And so the programming that we do at Navigate NOLA is directly, was directly informed initially by those interviews coupled with uh, research and data. So you kind of answered my next question, so I'm going to phrase it a little bit different now. Okay. So I only lived in New Orleans for two years, but I come back on a regular basis. New Orleans has changed so much, even in the, um, especially in a education way, uh -huh. in which they've kind of pushed out the people who make New Orleans, New Orleans. Uh -huh. So how, yeah, what is the best, I guess, the quality of life for black New Orleans in a pre and post Katrina world? 
Oh, okay. I, I, I see what you're saying. Um, so I think so much of what draws people to New Orleans is like the uniqueness and the individuality um, that you experience in this city. And that directly comes out of um, Black people in the city of New Orleans historically um, and since the times of slavery, um, finding creative and innovative ways to uh, be resilient, to um, to come together and use collective power to fight inequities and to also fight for moments of joy. And so, so much of what uh, we see or experience in New Orleans, um, in particular from a native standpoint, are shaped around like a lot of traditions and routines that are deeply embedded in us and passed on across generations. Um, and so a lot of the uniqueness and individuality that I experienced and sort of normalized um, because you know I grew up in New Orleans, um, some of those things um, have kind of been um, silenced um, to a certain extent with gentrification. So there's been a lot of like, um, pushback with residents moving into historically African-American neighborhoods and wanting to um, use uh, no noise ordinances to uh, around like people who um, have been able to make a living uh, through like live music, for example. And so they lived in neighborhoods like Treme, which is a historically black neighborhood. And so there have been neighborhood ordinances that have caused them to not be able to, to do those kinds of things anymore. Um, African-American neighborhoods or historically African-American neighborhoods are now, we're seeing like a shift with um, gentrifiers coming in and uh, pushing natives out of those communities and the cost of living in those neighborhoods are uh, drastically increasing and so uh, neighborhood natives can't afford to live there anymore which is a really sad thing um and it also um it so and it, it's, it's inhibited the ability of natives to be able to make a living um even when you think about the tourism and hospitality industry, which, which is a major industry for uh, many people of color in New Orleans. And prior to Hurricane Katrina, people of color could afford to live downtown and closer to the city where they could um, access hotels and other spaces where um, that were major economic drivers. And now the cost of living in those areas is really expensive and they can't afford to live there anymore. So they're being pushed out into communities like New Orleans East, where it's very challenging to get a bus ride even uh, to downtown. Um, and it takes a long time to travel. And neighborhoods like New Orleans East are not um, conducive to uh, the kinds of supports that you need to mitigate the, the adverse impact of poverty. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been really challenging. So um, that's one part of it. And um, certainly a huge part is that our uh, public education has drastically changed in New Orleans. So um, like I said, I'm a New Orleans native and I went to public schools from elementary school all the way up to high school. Um, and after Hurricane Katrina, um, the uh, public school teacher veterans were fired and there was a flood of Teach for America, very novice teachers, very white teachers coming in uh, to teach primarily African-American students, many of which um, live in under-resourced communities and living in poverty. And then um, also thinking about the elevated levels of PTSD and, and depression and all of the things associated with navigating a post-disaster recovery environment after Hurricane Katrina. 
So you have students interfacing with novice teachers who don't really understand the population that they serve and don't have a lot of experience and the veteran teachers were fired and pushed out. Um, and so, you know, what, what that looks like is, I guess, one of the comparisons I can make, having had the experience of being a school social worker prior to, you know, um, moving on to the role that I'm in now, uh, I worked at a school social worker at a lo local high school, and something as simple as like um, African American girls, um, you know, encountering disciplinary sanctions over their attitudes being policed, right? And so having a bad attitude, um, arguably is a part of adolescent development. And it's not specific to black girls, it's specific to teenagers, just in general. It's a part of their growth and development and sometimes they have attitudes. And so what we would see happening, not just across race, but also within race, um, would be uh, teachers who would want to suspend um, students and get really angry about them having attitudes. Um, and pushing them out of schools um, subsequently because of something as simple as an attitude. But we see that all happening all over the country. The policing of attitudes as it relates to African-American girls. Um, we see hairstyles, them getting put out of school because, of, because they're wearing natural hairstyles and braids. That happened in New Orleans or I think Jefferson Parish actually, which is, you know, Metairie, um, a private school there. They put a, an African-American girl, wouldn't allow her to, to come to school. She had braids. Um, so we see those kinds of things happening. Um, and, and just to give an example, I mean, when I was a teenager, I most certainly had, um, I was a black girl with a bad attitude and not just a regular old bad attitude, but a New Orleans black girl bad attitude, which has a little flavor on it. So it was rough, um, but it was a part of my development as an adolescent. And I can certainly remember walking into a French class. I was late for class um one morning and and have been late for class many mornings and it wasn't my fault it was because my mother brought me to school and she took some time to you know get us out together and and off to uh school we went to school uptown and lived in new orleans east so it was quite a commute um and that has everything to do with um disparities in education in new orleans you know my mom wanted us to go to one of the best schools and that certainly wasn't in my neighborhood so we trucked all the way uptown to go to school so i was late and so my teacher my french teacher uh, just kind of rudely said something to me like well if you keep coming in late you're gonna have to do a week of lunch detention and i said well you can assign that week of lunch detention to my mom because she's the reason i'm late every morning and i said it just like that with that kind of attitude and he didn't like it and so he gave me a week's worth of lunch detentions and so i rolled into you know lunch detention for the first time and the assistant principal sort of managed disciplinary sanctions so he was running you know, lunch uh, detentions. And I walked in there and he was like, what are you doing in here? And I told him, you know, everything. I'm like, you know, my mom brings me to school. We're coming in from New Orleans East. I don't have any control over what time I get to school. And he's like, yeah, you shouldn't be in here. You're excused and excuse me from lunch detention. So, you know, that's an example of someone who understood that, you know, me having an attitude, um, was really like <clears throat> my first line of sort of like defense mechanism or a protective layer because I was upset, you know, because this teacher was not understanding what my actual experience was. And so this person came in and took time to understand what that was and also removed the disciplinary sanction. So a couple of things came out of that. I didn't stop 
being a black girl with an attitude, but I learned ways to sort of use my attitude in different ways. And so now I would say I use it around advocacy and activism, which is what we hope to see. And so the assistant principal didn't silence that in me, but I learned from that experience that maybe the ways in which I was displaying my attitude with the French teacher wasn't gonna get me what I wanted, right? Because the French teacher gave me a, a lunch detention. But I think, you know, black girls in schools now don't have that opportunity. And so that's what I think is needed and necessary. And so, uh, you know, an important part of that, as I would say, is through training and professional development um, and having a better understanding of what these experiences look like um, and what adolescent development is, all of that stuff. And so that's some of the work that Navigate NOLA does as well as it relates to training and professional development. So we don't just provide classroom-based services to kids, but we're also uh, building up the capacity of the workforce by doing training and professional development. Why is it so important to tell the story of women of African diaspora, especially women in the South? So there, there's so many negative stereotypes about African-American women, and there's a lot of work that needs to happen in terms of changing the narrative. And I think that that work is, is currently being done, but I would say um, specifically in the South, um, <clears throat> I think those negative stereotypes are exacerbated. Um, people usually describe African-Americans living in the South as if we're behind, um, as if we're not as sharp or not as smart. Um, and they talk about some of the experiences we had during, say, for example, like Jim Crow, as if, you know, we uh, sort we chose to to. Uh, to live in those environments as if, we, as if we had other options. And so when you think about things like the, uh, the Black migration, uh, moving away from the South and, and these very courageous acts that happen among those individuals that were able to do it. And I think that's amazing. Um, I'm a big fan of, what's her name? Isabel, um, she wrote the book. Isabel uh, Wilkerson. Isabel Wilkerson, yeah, The Warmth of Other Sons. Amazing, amazing work. Um, amazing stories that she told in there and, and a very uh, compelling book. Um, but th th there's another story too, and that's the story of people who didn't have the privilege of being able to escape and had to stay here and figure out ways to survive. You know, and that's a story um, that is equally as heroic. And we don't appreciate that story. We don't appreciate it in the South and we don't appreciate it, but you know, in, in other geographic areas either. And so I think it's really important to to be able to lean into those experiences and elevate those narratives and talk about the people that, you know, weren't able to migrate and had to stay here learn how to survive and also create pathways um, for those of us coming behind them and, and continuing to live in the South, right? And so like one really uh, amazing story or example is uh, there was a black woman who was um, a slave in Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, I cannot think of her name. They call her, they, they've written children's books about her, calling her the night school teacher, but she would teach um, slaves how to read. And she had like an overnight school um, in Natchez, Mississippi. And she went on to be one of the, the uh, large group of people who, you know, started uh, Jackson State University, what went on to be Jackson State University. Um, I cannot, I don't know why I can't think of her name uh, right now. It escapes me. My memory has gotten really bad with coronavirus, like, like the, the pandemic. Let me just go ahead and put that out there. Um, but yeah, but we don't tell enough stories about women like that, right? Who have um, 
laid the foundation for us to be able to have access to public education, um, to be able to go to go off to college. And so that's why I think in particular, because the disparities are so pervasive in the South, that it's important um, to make sure that those stories are told and those narratives are, are put out there. Um, so it's, again, about changing the narrative. And just in wrapping up. Her name, I remember her name. It's Lillian Granderson. Sorry. You're you're fine. <laughs> Trust me, I have these moments where you see people, you see the story, and like I can't think of the name. Yes. But trust me, I understand. Um, just wrapping up. So, what do you think is the key to success as a successful Black woman um, in your profession, in your personal life? Yeah. What's your nugget? Um, my nugget is to have grace with yourself and to recognize that what success looks like is constantly growing and evolving at every stage in life. And so when I was 22, fresh out of college, fresh out of Spelman College, what I thought my life would look like um, in my 30s, it doesn't look anything like that. And that's because, you know, what I want for myself has changed over the years. And that's a direct reflection of like my experiences um, and me being open. So, you know, when I graduated from Spelman, I had no idea I'd be a social worker. I thought I was going to go into broadcast journalism. Um, and I can't imagine being a broadcast journalist. That certainly is not in sync with like, you know, how I see myself today. But my ability to be open um, to what that looks like, um, and which requires a lot of um, self-awareness and practicing self-care, carving out time to think about where I am in life, what I want uh, for my life at that time and what I need uh, to be happy and leaning into that and not allowing other people's ideas of what should be making me happy to define uh, who I am and what my experience is. And so I'm always open to growing and evolving and having new experiences. And I'm also open to change and things changing. I don't feel, you know, stuck or um, confined to like the rigidity of other people's expectations of me or society at large's expectations. I define that for myself. And I'm able to do that because I carve out time for myself every day to reflect and think about like how I want to feel and like what I need to do to get there. That is our episode for today. Again, thanks to Dr. Danielle Wright for coming on Meeting of the Madams and sharing a little bit about herself with us. I hope that you took something from our interview today as you continue to build your story on your journey. One love, Amory Skye.